Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Here in beautiful, sunny, incredible, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, where I am currently uh, recovering from a very long and taxing day 1A of the main event. I made it to day two. I'm happy to say, spoiler alert, I am moving on to day two. I had a number of interesting hands and interesting spots, um, many of which I intend to discuss with you guys on today's episode. So I hope you're looking forward to hearing some main event hands because I certainly have quite a few of them for you. Um, Before I get into those hands, I want to just say if anyone out there is uh, interested in learning more about Tournament Poker, uh, Tournament Poker Edge is the best place to learn. Um, You can go on the website, tournamentpokeredge.com. You can get a membership for as little as $25 a month, which is nothing, uh, especially when you consider the quality of content and the just sheer amount of content on the website. So please do sign up if you haven't done so already. Hope you enjoy our free podcast, but it really just scratches the surface on what you can get at tournamentpokeredge.com. So here we are recording this on July 4th, 2019. Yesterday, I had a very interesting day 1A. Um, originally, I was at a certain table, and very shortly after I was seated, I was moved to a new table because of balancing. So For those who haven't played in a casino before, if it's nine-handed and one of the tables somehow gets down to seven-handed because of eliminations, then they'll take a player from another table to make both of those tables eight-handed for the time being until they can fill the ninth seat at each, rather than having one table play seven-handed when it's supposed to be a nine-handed tournament. So uh, that was happening And it just so happened that I would be the player from the other table that was picked to come and and join the shorthanded table. And it happened, I don't even know how many times. I can never remember any poker tournament where I played more tables on day one than I played yesterday. (laughs) It was kind of ridiculous. Um, The worst table was uh, one with a number of recognizable faces, including Liv Barie and her boyfriend, um, Igor, whose last name I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, And there were also several other familiar faces. You know, there are like pros in the game that you kind of recognize because you know they're killers, but you just can't, you know, their name doesn't come to mind right away. So there were a couple of guys like that. And there was one guy that was drinking heavily. (laughs) So um, I didn't want to be at Liv's table 
and Igor's table and all these other guys. So I was only at that table for five minutes before again I was picked to move to a new table for table balancing purposes. Um, but I could still see that table from my new position. And believe it or not, my seat was replaced by Dan Smith. So I think everyone at that table was like, get that comedian guy back here because we don't want to play with Dan Smith either. So that must have been one of the toughest tables in the room. I'm glad I only had to spend about five minutes there. Uh, so yeah, as we discussed some of the hands I played yesterday, we will definitely be talking about uh, a, a mixed bag of opponents because these hands are going to be from multiple different tables as I was bounced around throughout the day. Um, very happy to have made day two. I did not finish with a huge stack right around the starting stack, just a little below. Um, but what's interesting is I was looking back on my deep run last year and it turns out that at the end of day one last year, when we started with 50,000 in chips, after day one, I only had 16,000 in chips. And we all know what happened after that. So just surviving day one has value. Obviously, I would have preferred to bag a million, but it just didn't uh, go that way this time around. Um, so yeah, let's get into it, shall we? Let's start it off with a hand from the third or fourth table that I played yesterday. I really don't know how many tables I had. Um, I, my stack was at 57,000. The blinds were 200, 300 with a 300 big blind ante. Um, two loose limpers in for 300 from early position. And then the most aggressive player at this table, let me describe this guy, probably about 40 years old, uh, really, really dark tan, like looks like he maybe lives in Florida and uses tanning beds and loves to get lots and lots of sun. He's actually wearing sunglasses right now. Maybe he thinks there is sun inside the casino. It's unclear why he's wearing sunglasses at the poker table. But I always remember uh, a dealer friend of mine in Phoenix when I uh, was visiting there. I made friends with this dealer and I questioned, this was like 12 years ago, I questioned why some players like to wear sunglasses at the table and that I never really wanted to do that. And he said, the only people who wear sunglasses at the table are jerks but he didn't use the word jerks <laughs> so i always kind of remember that and it generally holds true with a few exceptions i know uh some of you like to wear your sunglasses at the table but there's something about wearing sunglasses that just makes you appear and behave in an unfriendly way which is not necessarily negative ev um, but it's kind of bad for the game in general in my opinion anyway that's a a little tangent about sunglasses there. Anyway, this guy's probably been involved in about three quarters of the pots that I've seen at this table. And there's probably been like, you know, at least 12 or 13 pots so far that he's just been, you know, if people limp, he raises. If somebody raises, he re-raises. He's been extremely loose and aggressive. Now, it's only a very small sample size to go on. But between that and the way he's dressed and his overall look, it seems like a pretty reliable player profile that he is just loose aggressive to his core. Uh, anyway, he makes it 1500 and the player on his left, who is not only wearing sunglasses, but also a hoodie and a necklace 
that is like a sparkly platinum looking necklace. Um, he also has some interesting, well coiffed facial hair, and he's in his late twenties to early thirties. Um, he calls, and this player has been very loose. So this was a pretty good table, um, and all the loose aggressive action was on my right, and then the players on my left were really tight. So I had pretty much an ideal seat at a really good table. Um, so it goes limp, limp, raise, call, and now I am in the small blind holding the king of hearts and jack of clubs. All right, so you could probably make a case for folding, and I really couldn't argue with it. I don't think calling is a profitable play, and I definitely think that re-raising is a profitable play. So, uh, and the reason I say calling is not profitable, guys, is because you're in the small blind. If you call this, uh, you're going to have three or maybe four opponents after the flop. Maybe even five opponents if the big blind also calls. And you're going to be first to act with an offsuit king-jack. You're going to be guessing, and you're going to have to guess first before you see anybody else's decisions. That's why I don't think we should be calling with a hand like this. I think you could put king-jack suited into a calling range, but even that would be pretty loose for my taste. Uh, it's just a trap hand that's pretty easily dominated, and we need to know what's going on. So, at least if you three bet, or four bet, no, three bet, I was right the first time. At least if you three bet, you have a chance of winning the pot right now, just taking it down. Uh, players tend to give up on uh, their steal attempts pretty easily in the main event because nobody wants to go broke on day one of the main event, which I think might be a recurring theme for this week's episode where I know how most players feel about busting on day one of the main event. Uh, they just, they'd rather bust on day two. I don't get it, but it doesn't really matter when you bust if you're not in the money, but a lot of players are in it for the the what do you call it the uh bang for the buck right so i pay ten thousand dollars i at least want to last more than one day which you know, i get it but it's weird anyway i make it 4200 and i think the value here is i can represent a bigger hand than the one i have uh after the flop and i might just win the pot right now so let's see uh i got two callers First limper and the original razor. Everybody else folds, but still, there's three of us in the pot now. And the flop comes six of spades, six of hearts, five of spades. So six, six, five with two spades. And we do not have a spade. We have king, jack, offsuit. And as I mentioned, being in the small blind, now we are first to act with very little information and we need to decide what to do. Well, let's calculate this pot, guys. There's 4,200 times three is 12,600 plus the big blind and ante. So 12,600 plus 600 is 
200. In this spot, you can make a case for checking or for betting small or for betting big. I decided to go big. Uh, and here's why. I don't want to get played back at by my friend in the sunglasses. Also, I think that I'm putting tremendous pressure on better kings, like king-queen, ace-king. Uh, these hands will have to fold if I bet big, but they might peel if I bet small. Uh, it, you know, Suppose I bet 5,000. I'm pricing them in, basically, to call, and they already have the best hand anyway, and they probably don't realize that, but they might call hoping to see uh, one of the cards they need on the turn. Uh, so I feel like in this spot, the way to go is bet one time big, and if I meet resistance, I'm going to give up on this one, okay? Not every bluff needs to be triple barrel, uh, you know, guns blazing all the time. And that is something that I need to remind myself uh, from time to time. But the plan was to bet big here and then uh, fold or give up on, uh, on any resistance at all. So with that in mind, I bet 7,800, which really isn't that big of a bet. Uh, it's more than half the pot, sure. But I think maybe I can size up a little bit bigger just to get a few more folds, especially because the plan is to shut down on the turn. But that is the bet I made. And the limper, uh, who has just been a loose guy, kind of limping into every pot, just kind of not really seeming to know much about tournament strategy, calls. So at this point, I'm out of position against my only caller who has been a loose passive player. He hasn't really done anything aggressive uh, in the time that I've been at this table, which is about 30 minutes. But, you know, this is the information we have to go on. So, as I mentioned, my plan at that point was to shut down and give up on this pot. I, I, I put forth a very strong effort to win this pot, and I've decided that, in my mind, I've checked out, and we're moving on to the next pot. Except the turn card is the king of diamonds, giving us two pair kings and the two sixes that were on the flop. So now what to do? Should we bet again? Um, you know, we put in another 15. There's like 15. There's like almost 29,000 in the pot at this point. Over 29,000 in the pot. And it's getting close to commitment time. I don't really want to go broke with the uh, King Jack here. So the plan is to check and probably fold to a bet. That might sound really tight, but what is he calling with on the flop? So I check, and he quickly checks behind. And at that point, I was sure that my pair of kings was best, and that he limped in with something like ace five, or um, any two spades, or uh, any two cards, really. But when he calls the flop, now we've got to really think about what he has. He called the flop. So he should have a flush draw or a straight draw with some of the hands we mentioned already. 
Um, he could potentially have a big pair. Some players like to just slow play their big pairs, queens, kings, aces. I don't think this is good poker strategy, but it is how uh, some of the less experienced players I've encountered this summer have handled those hands. They seem to feel like there's more value in deceiving everyone and turning over a surprise pocket aces rather than just building a big pot before the flop. Let's remember, this player limped in from early position, actually from second position, and then called when it went raise and re-raise behind him. So it seems unlikely that he would have pocket aces, but it is possible. Um, he could also have jacks or queens, um, hands that are looking to limp and re-raise, but when all the action happened uh, before the fact, they just now don't know what to do, so they call as a compromise. Um, when he checks back on the turn, I don't think he has me beaten very much. So, the river is the ace of clubs which is a very unwelcome sight because my opponent could easily have something like ace four of spades. Uh, remember, he called a, a good size bet on the flop. So with that, I don't like the ace. However, I still need to treat my hand like a bluff catcher uh, some of the time. So I check and my opponent almost immediately fires 16,000 into the 29,000 pot. So two-thirds-ish. Uh, yeah, pretty rough here. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah this, is, this, is, this is a brutal spot. I don't really think that players like this gentleman, let's talk about him for a second. He's probably in his late 40s, white hair, uh, seems like he takes care of himself, like his hair is combed, um, he's clean shaven, he's wearing a Fender t-shirt, which I like because I'm a guitar player. Um, and he seems, like I mentioned, that, that he hasn't really made any aggressive action at all. This is literally the first aggressive action I've seen this player take at this table. So, even though I kind of discounted pocket aces and you know I don't think very many aces would call me on the flop this hand doesn't add up and it, it, it was tempting to call but I chose to fold and we, we don't know what he had we never will but I just don't think that you can make a lot of money in the main event calling 16,000 bets against players that are have already proven themselves to be essentially loose passive players when a passive player suddenly wakes up and makes a big bet, I usually just give that player credit. Uh, you know, and that's exploitable for sure. I I do need to have some bluff catchers in my range, and King Jack is a perfectly good bluff catcher. It'll pay off whenever he missed with 8-7 or the spades that didn't get there. But some of the spades that didn't get there are ace-x of spades, and that's the problem for me is that he could make this play with the river ace, because now I've checked twice in a row. I checked on the turn and the river. It's very unlikely that I have an ace. So he's not afraid that his kicker's no good when he has ace four of spades or whatever. So anyway, that was that hand. I had to lay it down. He did not show. 
Um, in talking to that same player about 20 minutes later about other things, I learned that he doesn't play a ton of tournaments. And you know, he actually doesn't play that much poker even, but he's in Vegas and it's kind of a bucket list thing. He's always wanted to play the main event. He watches it on TV and stuff like that. But he's not a serious player, which to me uh, makes me feel better about my fold and better about my read. So that was the first hand I wanted to share. And I would always, as always, I welcome you to give us your thoughts on this hand and, you know, let me know how badly you think I butchered it. (laughs) Or let me know if you agree with any or all of the uh, decisions I made. There's a lot in this one. You know, should we three bet pre-flop? I don't know. It's debatable. Uh, should we continuation bet the the flop of six six five, having three bet the flop? Uh, should we bet? Should we lead out again on the turn when we make a pair? So let me know what you guys think. It's a, an interesting hand and one that doesn't come up very often. It's really about the player dynamics. Uh, a lot of my decisions were guided by the player dynamics. So my Twitter is at Clayton Comic. Please follow me and uh, feel free to tweet your comments or questions about this and any anything uh, at Clayton Comic on Twitter. Okay, let's do another hand from yesterday's main event action. Still at the 200, 300 level, 300 big blind ante as well. Um, I opened under the gun with pocket tens, um, made it 800. So 800 had kind of settled in as the standard raise at this table. The player from the previous hand that I discussed, uh, again, it's a white guy around 40 years old, white hair, Fender t-shirt, uh, definite amateur, loose passive player. Uh, but this was actually before we had that conversation where I determined that he doesn't play much poker. Um, well, not that I determined it, but at that point that we had our conversation, I was able to confirm it. So uh, he calls and the uh, old guy, I, I shouldn't say old, he's not that old. He's probably late 50s. Uh, seat nine. He's a loose player. He's an amateur. He's got a Boise State hat on. Uh, he's uh, a little pudgy. And he plays as well as you would expect uh, an amateur player to play. He's not terrible, but he mostly tries to stay out of trouble, and that's his approach to the game. Um. The button in this hand is a soft-spoken, young uh, European player, maybe Belgian or, I don't know, Dutch, somewhere around there. Uh, He's very quiet. He's probably 29 years old-ish, and when he speaks, you can hardly hear him. He also hasn't been terribly aggressive at the table, he seems like he's been waiting for a good spot. He raises to 4,000, 
which is a big bet. So again, the action is I raise under the gun and get two callers. And now this player, who has not been overly aggressive at the table, wakes up and puts in 4,000. And uh, the other guys fold to me. And now we, I think we have a decision here. And I think folding is okay. Um, the only reason, <clears throat> the only reason I called is actually because I can put him on a very tight range. Uh, I think it's unlikely to be a bluff. I don't think he's doing this with ace four of hearts or, you know, nine, eight of spades. I believe, uh, this hand represents true value. And therefore, my 10s are not doing that great against a range of ace-king and then jacks plus, which I think is about where he is. Uh, the only reason I decided to call is because uh, he's got about 68,000 in his stack and I have uh, about 58 in my stack at that point. So, and also I can assume that there'll be action on my left as well. I expect probably one or both of these guys to call. You know, you're in for 800, you might as well be in for 4,000 too. What the heck, it's just the main event, the most important tournament of the year. Uh, <laughs> so I decided to call. And I'm basically set mining unless he has ace-king. And let's see. Only one of the other players, so not the nine seat, only the uh, player, the white haired player with the Fender t-shirt called. So three of us see the flop. And again, I have to play a pot out of position. And the flop comes ace of spades, king of spades, deuce of diamonds. Again, hero, Clayton, holding pocket tens. And I do have the Ten of Spades for what it's worth. Ace of Spades, King of Spades, Deuce of Diamonds. Um, I think I'm checking my whole range in this situation. It's very hard for me to have hit this flop. Um, considering that I raised and then called. Most of the hands that hit this flop should have put in a four bet, especially with the amount of strength that my opponent showed. Uh, you know, if he makes it 4,000 with queens and I have kings or aces, I should keep raising to try to get in pre-flop. Uh, so my plan is to check and fold when the button bets. I check, my white-haired friend checks, and... The player on the button thinks about it for a minute, not a minute, 10 seconds, and then checks. At this point, I still don't really have any intention of firing, uh, unless, of course, I turn a set. Maybe I could have a, a small bluffing range on certain uh, spades that might hit and give me a 10 high flush draw. Namely, those would be the uh, queen of spades, or the jack of spades. The reason being that both of those would also give me a royal flush draw. So uh, I have a lot of winning chances even 
against very strong hands if those two spades come. I think on most other cards, the plan should be to check and fold to the delayed continuation bet. Uh, instead, so yeah, I check and instead of folding, it checks through. Now, what hand makes it 4,000 and then checks on ace, king, deuce? Well, a set of aces would and a set of kings would. But also, jacks. And one thing about his pre-flop raise, it's really large. And players in general like to make very large pre-flop raises with pocket jacks. Um, it's exploitable. It's certainly something I've noticed in all of my years in poker. Players want to end the hand now when they have jacks. Nobody seems to like having jacks and they just want to make a big raise and take it down now. So I think jacks are certainly part of this player's range. But I also have to fear the set of aces, set of kings. They're just, they, they are too strong to bet. Or they might think they're too strong to bet, is what I should say. All right, so everybody checks. The turn is the ace of diamonds. Now, for me, this card changes things. Um, it's extremely unlikely that my opponent has pocket aces. Now, um, he could certainly have ace-king, but it's it, this ace is just a card that takes a lot of those combos out of his range. So the question is, can I represent an ace? Uh, I certainly would have stopped raising with ace-king if somebody made it uh, 4,000 pre-flop. So I think that I can represent this card. I also think that it shouldn't cost much. Uh, even a small bet would probably win the pot against pocket jacks and whatever our friend in the Fender t-shirt might have. Uh, so let's calculate the pot. So uh, three of us put in 4,000, that's 12,000. And there was also a caller for 800, so it's 12,8 plus the blinds and antes are another eight. So 13,6 in the pot. And I fire out. Well, before I tell you what I bet, let's talk about the theory here. Uh, I, I don't think it should cost a lot, as I said. Um, I'm putting a ton of pressure on a hand like pocket jacks with this bet. Um, and it wouldn't, it, I wouldn't bet a lot if I had a monster here, four aces, uh, four kings, I mean, a uh, full house, kings full of aces, ace king is, you know, effectively the nuts. I, I don't really see any reason to overbet with my value hands. Therefore, I think the correct play here is to bet something like 5,500, less than half the pot. Uh, I'm happy, well, not happy, but I'm willing, let's say willing, to admit that I didn't think about that at the time. I really wanted to win this pot, 
and I fired 10,000. And that's just too big a bet, let's be real. Because I'm really only targeting pocket jacks, I should bet smaller. Uh, it worked, guys. Uh, everyone folded, which is great. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to include this hand because, you know, the the main event is a grind. It's really long. I've played so many main events. I think this is my, it's my 12th World Series of Poker. I think I've played nine main events. Um, and I, I still make these kind of mistakes. Maybe just the, the moment gets to me a little bit. Uh, my concentration falls a little bit. And even though this is a pot that I won, I, I consider my bet sizing way too big. And therefore, it's a mistake because he's never folding a monster. So I just lose more when I'm beat. But I don't really gain that much from the extra chips. Uh, he's not calling with jacks either way, I don't think. So it's just time to uh, size it down and risk less to win more. So having gotten away with a sizing mistake there, uh, I continued to run it up. Uh, things were going great. We had about 80,000 in our stack when the blinds were 200 and 400 with a 400 big blind ante. So our M was 80, and we had 200 times the big blind in our stack. So by any measure, we were doing well. Our stack was above average as players were still entering the main event, uh, as they will up until the start of day two. So it's folded to me in the cutoff. This is the same table as before uh, and I open to 1100 with the king eight of hearts king of hearts eight of hearts blinds 200 400 with 400 ante everyone folds to me in the cutoff and we open king eight of hearts to 1100 folds to the big blind which again is our older gentleman in the Boise State hat uh, amateur player who's mostly folding too much. Uh, he calls and he's only got about 35,000 behind. I say only, but it's still a pretty deep stack, nearly 100 big blinds himself. Uh, so he calls and we see a flop heads up in position with hero holding king of hearts, eight of hearts. The flop comes, ace of diamonds, eight of diamonds, five of spades. So we flopped middle pair with no backdoor flush possibilities and our opponent leads out. Having called from the big blind, he now bets into us uh, for 2300 Now we already put in uh, 2200 pre-flop between the two of us plus another 600 for a total of 2,800 in the pot. So this is a fairly substantial bet. 23 into 28 is not a joke. Um, still, I have a lot of trouble coming up with any hand in the world that should make this bet in my opponent's shoes. Um, I suppose it's a good play 
with a flush draw. Um, but the problem is with an ace-high flop, uh, it's very difficult to get uh, a fold. So betting 2300 isn't going to do anything that maybe 1500 or another reasonably sized flop bet wouldn't accomplish. So it's just an odd bet, uh, no matter what he has. Uh, if he wants to bet a set with this much, he has no balance because... There's no other hand besides a set that makes sense for him to play this way. Um, I think that he should probably check to me with all of his hands. But if he wants to have a donk leading range, as we like to call it, uh, then I think it's fine. But he needs to make a smaller bet here. There's, there's just no reason to bet this much. Um, so yeah, unless he's trying to be, you know an exploiter and thinks that I will call too often with my ace X uh, against his sets or whatever. But yeah, um, it's possible that he's, that he's just over betting because he's very happy to see such a good flop. And also um, players like this one tend to over bet because they overemphasize the importance of protection. Um, what I mean by that is he may, have a hand like, let's say he called preflop with like an ace seven or something like that. Uh, an ace with no kicker. He wants to bet to end the hand because he doesn't want to play two more streets with such a marginal holding. Uh, so he's hoping to get rid of me. But again, if I have an ace, I'm not going anywhere. So it's a misguided philosophy if in fact it is his philosophy. Um, he's also going to be overly concerned about the diamonds or the possible six, seven, or the various gut shots that could get there if he bets too small. Um, and you know, we know this player type, these older players from places like Boise, Idaho, <laughs> uh, and they just, they worry a lot about getting outdrawn. So they overbet to protect. So those are all possibilities. Um, I did a live read, as as online players like to call it, or as I like to call it, a read. Um, and I felt my opponent was uncomfortable and was trying to look intimidating. And so I surmised that he would prefer for me to fold above all my other options. Whenever I have a sense of what my opponent would like me to do, I usually try to find ways to disappoint them when doing so makes sense. So this appeared to be such a spot. And so I raised with my middle pair to 5,800. The way I see it, I have uh, a good chance of taking it down now. But if that doesn't happen, I can still get two more free cards I just think that this raise will stop his betting a lot. Um, so 5,800 is enough for me to get to see the turn and river and see if I can make another pair or possibly trips or maybe even find a good bluffing opportunity such as two running diamonds. So I really like this raise and, and I think it's uh, it, it kind of demonstrates the problem with betting 
in my opponent's shoes. Uh, because he is unlikely to have a set, especially when I have an eight myself, um, he's mostly going to have marginal hands when he leads big like this into the razor on this particular flop. Uh, and he's going to be under tremendous pressure when he has something like, even if he has something like ace-10, do you really want to call 58 now and then let's say 11 more on the turn and then have to put it all in with that hand on the river? Uh, so raising here really starts to make him think about the fact that I'm threatening his stack. And although... All computers would probably say to call to catch bluffs with all your aces if any computer would let you bet this flop anyway. Uh, I think that most players are exploitable in that they're not willing to go broke with one pair. And maybe they shouldn't be. I mean, he's totally healthy, as I mentioned. He's got, geez, he's got almost 100 big blinds himself. So he thinks about it for a while and throws his hand away. He claims that his kicker is no good, but I'm not ever sure what to believe. Uh, I could have well had the best hand. You know, maybe he flopped bottom pair or middle pair with something like 8-7 and just wanted to bet the flop and see if he could win it. Um, because his bet doesn't make sense, it's very hard to figure out what an appropriate range would be for such a bet. Uh, but regardless, he threw it away and we continued to chip up early on in the main event. Last hand I will share for this episode, guys, and I think it's a really good one that should inspire some discussion out there <laughs> amongst those of you who are still listening to this podcast while there is so much main event coverage for you to be paying attention to. By the way, thank you all for being a part of this show. We appreciate all the tweets and the retweets and, the, of course, the ratings and reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere else you get your podcasts. I cannot emphasize enough how much that helps us build this podcast into what we all want it to be. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on now there there's going to be a break um the floor person just came onto the microphone while the dealer was dealing out this final hand of the level the level is 300 500 and 500 and some players have already started leaving the table to go hurry up and get to their break um this is the second to last level of the day so we've been playing for quite a while, but I have, of course, been to every table at the Rio. So this is my eighth table, and you guys don't know anything about this table yet. Um, we have Brandon Adams, who is a very, very, very accomplished professional high-stakes player who is playing the main event at the same time as the $3,200 online high roller championship. And he is doing quite well in that online tournament. So he has been mostly phoning it in here in the live event. No big deal. Just the world championship, $10,000 championship event. Not that important. So go ahead and stare at your iPad the whole time. Uh, he's 
three, four to my right. Um, let's see. Next to him is... Uh, no, Brandon is three to my right. Next to Brandon, closer to me, on Brandon's left, is uh, a player who seems like he's tilting a little bit. He's had a short stack most of the day, and uh, he, he mumbles a lot under his breath. Probably like 30-ish years old, probably about a good 50 to 60 pounds overweight, and grouchy with about 20,000 in chips. Um... Although he's feeling a little better now because in the pot right before this one, he check shoved on me when I continuation bet the flop and uh, I had to fold. So he picked up a few chips on that hand, but he's still pretty short and well, well, well below average. Um, uh, to the right of him is a woman, a Canadian woman, probably in her 50s, uh, just as nice as can be. And pretty good at poker, actually. Um, surprisingly, from looking at her, I would have assumed that she uh, didn't really know how to play. And then I've been pretty impressed with her game thus far. She's made a few bluffs. Uh, she's done some trapping. Like, she's a pretty good player. Uh, then there is your friend Clayton. And on my left is an interesting fellow, young Belgian professional, uh, seems to really know what's going on, uh, probably 27 or 28 years old, very friendly, seems to recognize me. The table has been pretty open about knowing who I am from the minute I sat down. Actually, a funny story. The woman actually asked me if I've ever been to Niagara because she thought I looked familiar. And I said, no, I have never been there before. So that's not where you know me from. And then she goes, oh, you actually, you look like that comedian that was on ESPN last year. And a, another guy at the table said, no, he's better looking. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm really not sure how to take that. Uh it's either a compliment to me or an insult to the way I look on TV. But uh, what was funny was that guy had headphones in. I didn't even know that he was listening to our conversation. But from that point on, everyone knew who I was. And so um, I was getting some attention in the form of questions about comedy and, and stuff like that. So anyway, um, that's kind of the lineup. The rest of the players on my left are mostly tight. And uh, not that important, especially not for the hand that we are about to discuss. So remember, I lost the previous pot to the grumpy guy, too, to my right. And now the floor man just announced that we're going to take our last break of the day. Or so we thought. We ended up having one more break. We didn't realize they were going to do that. Um, but yeah, everybody thinks it's the last break of the day. People are starting to mill about and go on break. And... People are openly talking about how much they want to make day one. I mean, day two. Uh, everyone folds to me in the cutoff position with our Belgian friend on the button and two tight players in the small and big blind. And I opened to 1,300. The blinds again are 300 
500 with the 500 big blind ante. Uh, and we have the ace of hearts, nine of clubs. Uh, I don't think there's any controversy about raising from late position with ace nine. Uh, I had at this point about 86,000 behind. So uh, yeah, we're, we're doing great. And no real uh, danger of not making day two at this point. My Belgian friend did something that he's done a few times already in the hour or so that I've been at this table. And three bets me from his button to 4,200. And everyone folds. And now it's on me with the ace of hearts, nine of clubs. I don't think you can call with this hand and make money that way. Um, in the old days, we always said that it's uh, a sign of an amateur to call three bets from out of position. Uh, given this player's tendencies, now I mentioned he's a good player. I mean, he has my respect and all that, but if he makes a mistake, I think it's that he is a little three bet happy, um, a little too aggressive in spots where calling is probably better. Um, so based on those observations, I decided to put in the four bet. I think calling is unprofitable and folding is actually fine. The thing is, we've been in this exact situation a couple times already and he's pretty much three bet me. Uh, if not all of them, then almost all of them. And it's been about an hour, an hour and a half since I sat down at this table. So I have a, you know, for a live tournament, I have a reasonable sample size to go on, but not a huge one. Um, this is the first time that I've put in the four bet. In uh, the other three times or four times that he's done this, I always folded to the three bet. This time I have an ace and I have a feeling that my opponent is a bit out of line, especially on the button with his pre-flop aggression. So I decided to raise. Now he had made it 42. By the way, he has about 52,000 in his stack. So that stack size factors a little bit into my thinking when I raise it to only 10,800. If his stack were a little bigger, like closer to the 86,000 or so that I started the hand with, um, I could definitely make a case for uh, raising bigger. But I think putting in 10,000 of his 52,000, oh, almost 11,000 of his 52,000, even with the button, is uh, a pretty important decision for my friend. And he tanked for about 45 seconds and then made the call. So we are now going to see a flop with ace nine offsuit out of position. And there is 20, almost 23, yeah, 22,900 exactly in the pot. And the flop comes jack of diamonds, four of diamonds, four of spades. And my opponent has only 41,200 in his stack. Uh, what to do, what to do. I got a little greedy here and I checked. So my intention was, as I mentioned, I feel like my talented opponent, if he makes mistakes, they tend to be of the 
too aggressive variety. I feel like he would probably take a stab at this pot pretty often without having a pair. Jack 4-4 four, four with two diamonds. Um, I think it's a good spot for him to try to take it down. My check looks like ace-king. I will check very often with ace-king, but I will also check with aces and kings, which, you know, these are the hands I'm supposed to have, right, when I put in the third raise before the flop. Um, and obviously some bluffs, including the ace-nine off that we're playing now. So I check hoping that my opponent will put in a bet so that I can uh, shove over him and take it down. Instead, my opponent checks behind. And at that point, I put him on a, maybe a jack, but more likely something like pocket fives, pocket six, pocket sixes, pocket sevens, like those kind of hands that did not, did not want to continue raising before the flop but they kind of have to call given the price uh to see a flop uh if he has a jack i think ace jack is probably reasonable maybe the only one that he should have um to put in that much of his stack when it's the first time that he's gotten four bet i think calling with any other jack is uh probably not positive expectation there um i think folding is better uh and i think that in his shoes he should probably slow play occasionally with aces or kings um but uh he checks behind so i don't get a chance to fire on him now i'm not sure i would shove it would really depend on his sizing but he's only got forty-one thousand eight hundred in his stack. So if he bets, you know, say 14,000 into the 23,000 pot, I think I can shove profitably over that sizing. If he sized down to like 7,000, I was planning to make a more normal, you know, raise there to like a little less than 3x. But I don't get to do any of those things because he foils my plan and checks behind. So the turn comes the eight of clubs. So our board is now jack four four with two diamonds and then the eight of clubs, which does not bring a second flush draw. I think the other four was a spade. Um, now it, the question becomes, do we bet? Uh, our check raise plan on the flop didn't work. Should we try to check raise the turn? Should we check and give up because my opponent probably has something when he doesn't bet the flop. All of these thoughts went through my head, but I ultimately decided to get after it here. Um, when he doesn't bet the flop, I think that he's, his range is pretty capped, and I think that he's not slow playing pocket aces, pocket kings very much anymore. So now he's got a pair not counting the two fours on the board. He's got two pair, like ace-jack or eight, or, well, the eight's there, but pocket nines for nines and fours, something like that. So, yeah, the eight is not my favorite card to see on the turn because I think there's a, a pretty good chance my opponent uh, has all the middle kind of pairs in his range, possibly even sixes, sevens, eights, nines. 
all the way up to tens should be uh, most of my opponent's range. But just because he could have made a set doesn't mean he did make a set. And it certainly doesn't mean that I should uh, give up on the pot. If I think I have a profitable bluff, I should make it. Especially when, if you think about it, this guy comes all the way from Belgium to play the main event. He's been having lots of fun at the table, laughing and talking comedy with me and just generally being a good sport about everything. Uh, he probably does not want this feeling to ever end. Playing the main event is not like playing other tournaments. For those of you who have never tried it, uh, believe me when I tell you, there is nothing like it in the world. Uh, playing this tournament is the thing I look forward to the most every year. It's just the best. And those who have never tried it won't understand until they do. But if you're on the fence about whether you come next year for the main event, just do it. Okay? You only live once. And playing in this tournament is one of the biggest thrills you will ever have in your life. So, knowing that that's how people feel about it, including myself, by the way, I decided to put some pressure on a man that I've pretty much been letting take control of our half of the table since I sat. As I mentioned earlier, this is really the first pot that I've contested versus him. So I think he might give me a little bit more respect because of all the times that I folded to his pre-flop three bet. So I fire 15,000 into the 22,000 900 pot and I believe this bet is too big. I think 13 is better because it sets up um, a larger river bet and uh, less attractive calling odds in case I want to fire again on the end uh, if this bet is called. So in retrospect I regret my sizing here on the turn and I think that 13 would have gotten it done. So I, I already noticed a pattern of myself on day one that a lot of my bets tend to be a little bigger than they should. Um, but yeah, there is a lot to think about there at the table and uh, it's much easier after you go home and take a look at it in black and white. So yeah, I, uh, I did fire 15 into 22.9 and my opponent called after about a minute. And at that point, I put him on a jack. Uh, I, I suppose he could also have a nine, you know, nines, tens, sevens, or, you know, a really big hand like pocket jacks or pocket eights or something. Um, but I think that most of his range when he just calls is a jack. I think betting 15 would probably usually get the sevens for sure to fold and probably at least sometimes the nines and tens as well. So at that point, I felt like he must have ace jack. And the pot was 52,900. And my opponent has only 26,500 behind. So the river comes the six of hearts. Apologies, by the way, if you hear a lot of noise. I'm in my hotel room and there is a very large group of people walking down the hallway in a loud way. 
It's Fourth uh, of July, late at night, and people are partying really hard. So it's uh, Six of Hearts on the end. The question is, do I want to put this man to a decision for his tournament life when I think that he has ace-jack on the final board of jack 4 4 eight, six. In most tournaments, I would say the answer is no. And bluffing here is a mistake because players nowadays know that they need to have bluff catchers in their range and they would put ace-jack into that range and all of that. I believe that because it's the main event, it is way harder for him to call with ace-jack. I think that I am representing aces very well. I'm also representing kings well. I could even have a full house of some kind. So I think calling with ace-jack is pretty heroic. But the problem is because my turn bet sizing is a little too big, I'm giving my opponent about four to one on a call. So when I put in 26.5K into the 52.9K pot, um, there is going to be, let's see, 53, let's call it 79, let's call it, there's going to be about 80,000 in there. Actually, 79.4. And it only cost him 26.5 to call. So, yeah, it's actually a 3 to 1 price. So he really only needs to be good about 25% of the time. And if he has ace-jack, he's probably good at least that often. Um... However, because it's the main event and because he has a very playable stack for the rest of of the level, um, by the way, after the break, we're going to come back to another hour at this level. So I was wrong. It's not the last hand of the level. I forgot they did the breaks because of TV stuff. They did the breaks right in the middle of levels. So I decided to go for it here. Um, I made this bet 26.5 enough to put him all in. And because the uh, break clock was running, most of our opponents had already left the table. Only Brandon Adams stuck around to watch this hand. And I think that's only because his online tournament was on a five-minute break. (laughs) Um, My opponent called after four minutes of tanking, and I was watching that clock the whole time. So... You know, you could say, wow, Clayton, you really didn't have to take all that risk. You didn't have to take such a high risk, high variance play in the main event. Are you crazy? Why did you spew off your big stack? Um, Why are you so aggressive? Like, you can ask me those questions. And I would only say we have another three hours with this opponent. Um, After the break, we're going to finish this level, and then there's a whole other level that we have to play through. And it seems like my time of moving around on a grand tour of all the poker tables in play at the main event 
is over and this will be my table for the rest of the day in all likelihood. So uh, wouldn't it be great to get rid of the talented Belgian professional and or at least get his stack down not give him a big stack bluffing yeah you know, there are all these different ways of looking at it you know like I could bluff off all my chips to him and then he'll be a big stack and I'll be a shorter stack you know if I lose this pot I'm going to have uh something like 34,000 in my stack and yeah that's exactly what I came back to so I think the difference between a great bluff and a total spew is two words. I call. <laughs> when a man takes four minutes to make a decision during break time, I know that I've made a good play. But yeah, it is questionable. And you're welcome to your own opinion about whether it's worthwhile to take such a high leverage, high variance spot against this opponent in this particular tournament where every single strategist out there says, well, the main event, the levels are so slow, the structure is so good, you don't have to take any chances. Um, that may be true, but because everybody knows that, I feel like it lends a little bit more perceived veracity to the plays that I make, particularly when you consider the fact that I had not played back at him once up until this point. He had queen of hearts, jack of hearts. So uh, I think that three betting off of a hundred big blind stack like he has with that hand is optional and it's perfectly fine. But I think that he'd done so much three betting already that he probably should have just called and avoided having to make such hard decisions. But I gave him those hard decisions myself. And I think I tweeted after this one, I put my opponent to the test. Remember, my final bet was all in for his tournament life. Have to go back to Belgium and tell your friends I busted on day one to a comedian. <laughs> uh I put him to a test and he passed. So I spent the next 15 minutes on a break, shaking that one off, recording the details so that I could discuss here on the podcast and with uh, some of the coaches that I talk to regularly, like Anton Wig and uh, Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald, and you know the guys that we talk with a lot on the show. Um, of course, uh, everyone's playing lately, so I haven't had a chance to run it past them yet, but I'm definitely interested in your opinions. Um, it's really a playing style decision. Do you want to go up against this Belgian pro or how would you play ace nine to a three bet? Do you want to call and then check and fold a lot on the flop? I mean, I think that's pretty bad poker. Uh, he's a good player. He's probably going to have a huge... Uh, EV edge on the flop if we just call pre. Isn't my hand too good to fold? Then 
if calling's no good and folding's no good, that really kind of leaves only one more option. Certainly, I think betting so big on the turn is a mistake, and you can see how it's a tougher decision for more chips on the river if I just do like 12, 5, or 13 on the turn rather than the 15. Every little bit makes a difference because it all changes the mathematics behind the logic, behind the emotion, and everything else that goes into this game that we love so much. As those who follow me on Twitter know, uh, the next three hours went quite well, and I ran my stack all the way back up to, uh, I think it was 58,400, which is what I will have at the beginning of day two, which is this coming Saturday, July 6th. So I am very much looking forward to that. I do have some hands from the last couple of levels there, but I don't think we'll get to them ever on this podcast because the next time we record, it's going to be day 10 or something of the main, and we'll have a lot more to talk about than something that happened at the end of day one. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, We appreciate you guys so much. Uh, If you would please do us the honor of rating and reviewing the podcast, definitely follow me on Twitter at Clayton Comic to follow my progress in the main event and all the other WSOP tournaments that I'll be playing for the next two weeks. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun, oh.